Good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. There's uh, quite a few people here today. This is good news. Um, first of all, uh, I have loved the band uh, all summer. I've loved the band always, of course, uh, but we always get a few extra guests uh, during the summertime. Uh, our college students, namely. Uh, and so I just kind of want to give a shout out to Ian. If the rumors are true, this is your uh, final Sunday before you go back to college. Uh, and uh, I just want to, I, I think we should all uh, thank the band in general, but uh, this is, and of course the interns have been amazing as well. Uh, their final Sunday is next Sunday, indeed. Um, it's, uh, it's been a transformative summer uh, in, uh, in so many different ways, uh, but it's been uh, wonderful to watch uh, that part of it. For me, it has uh, week after week uh, been inspiring, uh, so thank you. Uh, last week, if you recall, we were talking uh, in John 6 as well. There's a, a miracle, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 uh, that we talked about. And uh, the, the miracle is, is well known, and it's one that uh, shows up in actually all four Gospels. Uh, and as I talked about it last week, I, I tried to talk about things like uh, creating a culture of faith and, and a culture of abundance and trying to uh, be a church that's uh, willing to experiment uh, I talked about things like rhythms of faith and, and even use fancy language like a sanctified imagination. And to that I would want to add we should have a scriptural imagination in which we, we immerse ourselves in the story of scripture and we find our story there. Um, and this week, well this week the story continues. John, John does something that the other three gospels don't do. He takes a miracle, a feeding of the 5,000, and then he turns it into a parable. And it's a fascinating thing that he does. He spends uh, the whole uh, of John 6, which is a very long uh, chapter. Uh, I encourage you to read it all at, uh, as you go home today. Uh, he spends the whole of it really reflecting on what it means, what this miracle uh, means, uh, and he turns it into something of a parable. We'll get there momentarily. Let's, uh, let's begin in a word of prayer. Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, you are the bread of life. You give us the nourishment that we need. And Lord, it is my prayer uh, that this morning, as we read your word and reflect on your word, that we feast upon your word that we feast upon you, and that, God, you fill us with your goodness, and we, we ask that you fill us with your life, and that, indeed, we walk out of here a people who are hungry for more of you. God, this is my prayer this morning. May it be all of ours. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Uh, as we begin this morning, I want to say this sermon is more or less about two things. It's about expectations and it's about desires. And I think Jesus is trying to reframe uh, both of these things in the crowd that saw that miracle that day, the 5,000. 
uh, Jesus forces that crowd uh, to re-examine their own expectations of, of who he is. And then he forces them to re-examine their own desires in the world that we all live in. But, but more importantly, us today, again, I, I want us to find ourselves in this story that we too might be challenged, that our expectations of who Jesus is and what he might mean for us, they be challenged, and that our desires in this life on a daily basis, uh, they be challenged as well. Starting with the expectations. Um, I, I think there are two pillar expectations, and, and I'm kind of laying some groundwork here. This, this could take a minute, and I'm going to just apologize ahead of time, but not really. Uh, if, if this is a little more teaching, sometimes I get accused of te teaching and not preaching. I don't get accused. I get encouraged. Uh, is what, uh, is what it is. But uh, this is one of these passages that there's, there is so much standing behind uh, the passage itself that is going to require a little bit of pulling back. I actually noticed this uh, in the children's term today where there's like, you, you kind of have to pull out what's underneath there. Otherwise, you might miss the whole story, frankly. And so we're going to start there. There are these two pillar expectations uh, that stand underneath the story itself. And one is, uh, is that the Jews of the first century are waiting on a new Moses. And the second is that they are waiting on a new David. Right? They have a prophetic expectation, a new prophet like Moses, and a new king like David. This is what they're hoping for in the first century. And so like Deuteronomy 18, uh, 15 uh, would uh, be a prominent passage uh, in Jews of the first century, probably before that as well. Uh, things like, so Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And here, Moses is setting out this expectation of a new Moses, right? And then there's uh, stuff about David, a Davidic king. Promises made in 2 Samuel 7. We've talked about some of this before. Uh, and the Jews in the first century most certainly are expecting a new king. A king who is a Davidic king. Some Jews in the first century are expecting two figures, a, a prophet and a king, to show up. And then once these two figures show up, well, then the new age can begin. Some Jews in the first century are expecting one figure to play both roles. And then the new age can begin. It appears that that crowd in the 5,000 that day who were fed by the miracle that Jesus did they were in the second camp, who saw both of these things happening together. And I say this because I didn't mention this last week, but the story ends this way. So Jesus finishes the miracle, and then we read this, starting in, in verse 14 of chapter 6. This is what uh, John says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said... This is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. Right? There's your prophetic expectation. 
This is the prophet. This is the new Moses. This is the one we're waiting on. But they don't stop there. They keep going. And it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. There we have it. We've got the prophet expectation, and we've got this kingly expectation, and they're together, right? And here's what's amazing about all this, is that it seems like the Jews get it, that this big crowd, they get it. They seem to understand who Jesus is. They get that indeed he is the prophet who is to come. He is this new Moses. I mean, this is a drum that the, the Gospel of Matthew beats over and over and over again, that we're waiting for this uh, new Moses and Jesus is the new Moses. And it seems like this crowd gets that. And then uh, the, the Gospels are filled with Davidic expectations, which is to say messianic expectations, which is to say Jesus is the Christ. And we've talked about this before, too. But Jesus, well, Jesus isn't fit to stop quite there. Because it seems like these two expectations, these, these pillars that are sitting underneath how they understand Jesus, well, they, they need to be reframed. And they need to be understood anew. And that there is actually a, a, a deeper core layer to who Jesus is that needs to be sitting there if you're going to understand him rightly. And so the problem... Well, the problem is that there is more to Jesus' identity, something far more significant than these two parts of the prophet and the king, even as important as those two parts are. Jesus is pulling them in deeper, and they are expecting Jesus to be like Moses and to be like David, which is to say that they are expecting him to be merely human. And that's the problem. They're expecting him to be like David, a human, just like you and me. Or Moses, human, just like you and me. And Jesus was fully human, just like you and me. But Jesus wants to say, there's more, right? There's more. Jesus is God incarnate. Now, I will say this about this crowd who misunderstands what's going on that day. I like to have empathy for, for the folks who don't get it uh, in the Gospels and, frankly, throughout the Scriptures. And the reason being is uh, I, I have this kind of deep-seated fear that sometimes I don't get it, that I need to be taught something. And I want to have an openness to the fact that if I've got something wrong, I want to be teachable in a way that some of the folks that we meet throughout Scripture are not. I want to be on the side uh, of the people like Nicodemus, who doesn't quite get it at first, until he does. That's the kind of person I want to be when my story is told. And so it's understandable, actually, that these Jews uh, kind of miss this deeper layer to Jesus' nature. You see, uh, on the first account, it's, it, it's that God has never done anything like this in history. 
God always works through human actors, right? And so when Jesus comes along and is God incarnate, this is something entirely new. And secondly, it's also understandable that they think of Jesus as merely human, as I've said, because he is human. And so they can point to his mom and his dad and say, we know these guys, and, and, and we, we know his parents, and, and where he comes from, and, and how is this? There's misunderstanding there that needs to be undone. What Jesus spends the rest of chapter 6 doing in the book of John is trying to fix the mistake that he is merely human. And, in fact, this is actually what gets Jesus into trouble. And if you read the whole of the story, you see, where we stop, it seemed like this was all heading in the right direction. And it's kind of this positive ending to it, where we stopped. And, and Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And then you might think that they all kind of flock to him and are like, yes. But that's, that's not how this story actually ends. And if you read to the very end of chapter 6, he ends up losing the vast majority of those 5,000 people who were there that day, and they stopped following him. And then his own disciples, the 12 of them, well, they continue on, but he even says, uh, well, one of you is a demon, he says. This is like one of the last words of chapter 6. And, of course, he's talking about Judas. But the whole thing kind of takes this this turn that they weren't quite expecting. I find it important to understand, as I've said, and to even empathize with the people that Jesus encounters in order to fully grasp the, the leap of faith that was necessary and that Jesus was asking of them. Because I think Jesus asks this same leap of faith in you and me. And I also think it's important to understand what Jesus is critiquing in those people, again, lest he might be critiquing you and me in the same kinds of ways, so that we indeed have ears to hear. Well, these people have seen at least one miracle, right? They've seen the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus takes five barley loaves and two fish, and he feeds at least 5,000 people with it, and there's 12 baskets full of bread left afterward. But it's probably not the only miracle they saw, because chapter 6 begins with well, them saying that the whole reason there's so many people following Jesus is that he had been doing these healing miracles. The thing is, in the Old Testament, what's going on is that other miracles happen that are similar to this. And so I imagine some of these people begin to follow Jesus and their mind is focused on figures like a Moses, who at one point strikes a rock and water begins to flow from it. Or who calls down manna from heaven, right? Or they might think of an Elijah, who was capable of, of, of taking a widow's son and, and bringing him back to life. But what Jesus wants to say is that something different 
is going on here. There's something more going on here. And so you might imagine that the 5,000 Jews who saw the miraculous feeding, well, they thought, we've got a new Moses or a new Elijah here. What they probably were not thinking in this moment was, we've got God incarnate here. We've got God incarnate here. And this, again, is the problem. This is the identity issue that Jesus is trying to fix. And so it is that the crowd understands Jesus on this one level, and they get the the one level right. He is that prophetic figure. He is that kingly figure. He is even the Messiah. But they don't get him on this deeper, more core level, that he is indeed the Son of God incarnate. And so this is essentially the backdrop to today's story. It's a people who have seen great things, and now they're wrestling with the meaning of it all. So let's read the passage together one more time. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it. We'll read it together. Begins like this, chapter 6, starting in verse 24. When the crowd saw that Jesus wasn't there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into their boats, and they went to Capernaum, and they were seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, does not answer that question, and he instead makes an important statement, a statement about their hearts about what's really going on under the surface. And he says, Truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal In John's Gospel, if you don't know, Jesus is routinely able to understand not only the actions of other people, but the motivations that stand behind them. And this is a wonderful example of this in John's Gospel. Jesus is offering a challenge to them because they saw a miracle, but appreciated not what it pointed to in the deepest sense, but what it did for them in that moment. They liked that it filled their bellies, is what Jesus says here. They they liked that they got a nice dinner, had a good dinner out, right? Got some good bread, some good fish. We all went home happy. I, I think we're not unlike this, right, when it comes to how we approach Jesus. Most humans, though, uh, uh, are like this, just generally speaking. There's, there's a reason the Romans uh, knew to talk about bread and circuses, right? Because the kings of the world, they, they know that this is what the crowds want. They want a spectacle, and they want their bellies full, and if they get that much, well, they'll be happy. And, well, this is exactly what that crowd got that day. They got bread, quite literally, and a circus in the form of a miracle. They were entertained. 
And they said, we want more of that. And Jesus points to it, and he says, you're seeking me because you ate your fill. And then he tells them what to do instead. Do not work, and this is the key word here, do not, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Do not work for food that perishes. There is a danger in understanding or maybe misunderstanding what is happening here. And the danger goes like this. I don't want you to think that Jesus does not care about your full bellies. I think he does, right? What Jesus is pointing to, however, is a higher spiritual reality that we should all be aiming at and that often gets lost because we're so focused on filling our bellies. We're so focused on the material or the physical that we often don't save room for the spiritual. And so we get off course and off track. And Jesus, in a moment like this, checks our motivations. And he asks you, why are you doing what you're doing in this life? What are you working for? Is it bread and circuses? Is it a good night out and Netflix? <laughs> what, what are you working for? He goes on. And in verse 28, he continues, and he says to them, well, or say, sorry, they say back to him, and it seems, the, the, I'll say the conversation seems to be going in a great direction, because they immediately say, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Uh, like a more literal translation of this is, like they're playing on the word work that Jesus has, has offered up here. And they say, what must we do to be working the works of God? How do we, what should we, what should we be working on? And, and it seems that they're open to the possibility that Jesus will tell them something that they want to hear. Uh, he doesn't necessarily tell them something they want to hear, it turns out, but it is something that they need to hear. And these two things are not quite always the same, are they? And so Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And it's worth saying that Jesus, well, he takes their question, which is, what are the works that we should be doing? What are the works of God? And he says, this is the work of God. He, he makes it singularly focused. He takes that plural and he turns it into one thing. And he says very clearly what that one thing is, that you should believe in him whom he has sent. Belief, or as I've talked about in the past, this is the same word as faith, 
which can be tra translated as trust or allegiance. I mean, this is, this is bedrock theology of what Christianity is and what it's trying to say. And I've tried to pull us out of a, uh, some sort of mode of uh, if we assent to the right doctrines, then we have the right faith, and instead pull us into the realm of, no, we must trust Jesus with all of ourselves. And I think this is true here. With one exception, I do think Jesus is looking for this one doctrinal issue on this account, and it has to do with his own divinity, and this is where the whole thing is heading, and that it's not enough that he's just a great prophet or a great man, or, and it's not enough that he be, uh, be called the Messiah or, or a king. He wants you to know, he needs you to know that there's something more there, that your faith and that your trust is in God himself. Verse 30, continuing on, so they say back to him, well then what sign do you do that we may see it and we might believe you? And what work do you perform? Our fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness, and as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is a uh, perhaps confusing to you. It was to me. I kind of read through this passage a few times. You see, they're asking him for a sign, and if I were Jesus, I would just kind of point back to the miracle, right? Didn't you see that, that thing that I did back then, you know, that you were all part of, the thing that filled your bellies? Is that not enough of a sign? I actually think... Uh, what's happening here is, is Jesus is pointing forward, and that the sign he is going to offer up is himself on a cross, and that this sign has far more import on who God is, who Jesus is, and how we are to live rightly in this world. It appears that <clears throat> the answer uh, to our problem here is actually in verse 31. If you look at 31, you see they say that our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. And here, if we're unclear, this is a reference, of course, to, to uh, well, Exodus chapter 16 and following as they're, they're wandering through the wilderness and, and Moses prays for manna from heaven. And, and then there's the quail as well. But it says here, he gave them bread. And then the key phrase, I think, and this kind of unlocks what's really happening, is that he gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is the key part. The bread here is from heaven. And they're looking for a sign just not like an earthly sign. And so they might even say to Jesus, yet yeah, we know you did that miracle thing with those five barley loaves, uh, and that was really cool, but we, we were hoping for bread from heaven, 
right? We were, we were hoping for, for bread from heaven. And I will say there is uh, some interesting connections to be made with expectations again in the first century where they are expecting some kind of manna to once again rain down from heaven. And there's all sorts of lore and mythology actually surrounding this manna from heaven. Is it manna from the angels? Is it like angelic bread that got made up in heaven and then was given to the people? Or maybe it was uh, even bread made by God himself and, and given to the people. And, and, and there's all kinds of... St- none of this, of course, is in Scripture, so don't go looking there for it. Uh, but it's... It's in the air at this point, and they're looking for this kind of, kind of bread and, and this kind of sign, a, a sign from heaven. The people are awaiting this sign from heaven, but they're expecting, I would say, too little. They're looking for this, this Moses figure again, this, this human capable of communicating with God and ushering manna back down from heaven. And Jesus wants to say, oh, there is so much more. There is so much more. And so, he says this in verse 32 as we continue. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. The true bread from heaven. And here Jesus is saying, you're looking for the wrong thing. You're looking for a Moses to give you manna, but you should be looking for this true bread. You should be looking for that which sustained the Israelites in the wilderness. You should be looking for a food that has given life to the world from day one when God said, let there be light. And Jesus is saying, you should be looking for me. You are looking for a Moses man, but you should be looking for God in the flesh, a God man. And that's who I am. That's what I have to offer You should be looking for the one who created all things and sustains all things, and that's me. And this is what Jesus wants them to know and to believe and to trust. And so he goes on in verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And here again, it seems like the conversation is really heading in the right direction. Um, If you just knew, it it really goes off the rails, and we're not going to be able to to dig all the way into that. But, uh, But it seems here like they're getting it. And here again, there's there's just a little confusion. And this time, uh, the confusion is one that is just an untranslatable confusion that uh, if you were to read uh, one version, well, we read the ESV in here, uh, and, and it says, as I, I already said, um, uh, for the bread of God is he who comes down. That's how it gets translated. He who comes down, right? Which indicates that it's, it's a person who comes down, right? Um, If you were to read in the NRSV, for example, 
you would hear this. The NRSV translates this as, uh, for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven. Okay? I imagine Jesus is saying and meaning the ESV version. And the Jews of his day are hearing the NRSV version. Does that make sense? So he is saying, I am the one who comes down from heaven and will sustain you with my life. And they are hearing the NRSV, which says something's going to come down from heaven. And so they say, well, yeah, we want that manna. Give us that bread, which then leads to the big reveal and the big punchline of it all, which was something of a sucker punch for them, though it maybe shouldn't have been. And this was when he finally says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And it's the big reveal. And you have to imagine, again, the, uh, they're thinking to themselves, wait, he, he's the bre bread of life. He's the one who comes down from heaven. How is this even possible? And they'll even say it later in the chapter. We know his parents, right? We, we know his lineage. And some of them might even say, I was there like on the day he was born. Uh, I, I saw him grow up. How can this be? They're looking for, or maybe Jesus is offering, not just an earthly bread. He's not just a miracle worker who uses barley loaves to create more bread. He is that something from heaven itself who has come down and pierced the veil that sits between heaven and earth. And it is he who breaks open the possibility that heaven is indeed breaking into the here and the now. That the realm of God is opening up and it's beginning to redeem the realm of humankind. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what he is saying. And so in this way, his miracle of feeding the 5,000, as I said, it becomes a parable. And he points to this miracle, and then he expands upon it. He opens it up, and he uses this, this wonderful imagery of the bread. And he ties it to the Passover which again, I never said this, but in, early on in, in the chapter, it talks about, like, it is the time of Passover as all of this is happening. And Jesus is using these real world examples to point to himself to this higher realm of seeing and living. And he's saying that the bread that he comes to offer represents a food that sustains, that does not die. 
I said this sermon was about expectations. And the Jews in that day and age needed to change their expectations. I wonder if some of us do as well. But I also said this is a sermon about desires. About desires. And we must ask the question, what do we desire? Is it the bread and circuses of the first part of John 6? I think that is a natural and normal human desire. Or is there something more? Is there a sanctified imagination that we can tap into and realize that as we look above the physical realm that we are so often bound to, that there is this heavenly world that is breaking in and that God is drawing us into through the person of Jesus Christ. There is a holiness expected in that. There is a heaven-shaped life that is awaiting. There is a new Jerusalem politic offered, a kingdom ethic. And I believe that what Jesus is doing here is a challenge to us to this very day because he pulls us out of the everydayness of our lives and he wants us to desire more, but a sanctified more, to see beyond the here and the now, beyond the material, to glimpse eternity and the God of the universe and to be forever changed by it, to be shaped into a people who are changed by seeing Christ and believing. That is what he calls us to. And if you see and if you believe, then you will indeed be changed by him. Let us pray together. Father God, Holy Christ, and the Spirit of God who dwells in our midst, this morning we come and we ask that you come and visit us, that you enter our hearts. God, that you open our eyes, that we might see you afresh, that maybe we might see you for the first time. And realize, God, that there is something more to this life than what we so often get stuck in. The, the expectations of life that keep us trapped, God, you are desiring to open that door and usher us into a world that can imagine far more than we ever could. Because it's out there for us, you are out there for us, pulling us into this realm of the kingdom of God that is bigger and more beautiful than we could ever imagine. God, you are indeed the bread of life. Jesus, you nourish us with that life. And God, if it's been a while since we've put our faith in you, then I pray that today we renew that faith. God, if we've never had that faith, and if we need it now, God, prick the heart of that person that they might trust in you for the first time, 
and that their eyes might indeed be opened to a world that they could never even imagine. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's